everyone wants to be confident, right? To be able to, to be unshakable when things go wrong or when someone says something evil against us or when there's opposition. But in our world, confidence is often synonymous with arrogance, right? With a sh- a kind of even a shallow positive thinking. And as Christians, we might naturally think that those things are not what God calls us to. But can we have confidence without being arrogant? Arrogant. Well, for a Christian, it, confidence is a good thing in and of itself, and it's not a bad thing. It's really, where does your confidence rest? That's the key question. And so the Bible is clear that we can be confident and secure in God. In fact, we're commanded to have our confidence and our security in Him. And not through a shallow way, but through the truth. And so how can we have supreme confidence in God? Well, this Psalm, Psalm 9, teaches us so much about that confidence that we can have that can ground us in difficult times. Now, some argue that Psalms 9 and 10 are one psalm. There are certain things that maybe indicate that. There seems to be some aspects aspects of an acrostic poem that's happening between Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. Now, an acrostic is where the letters, the, the first letter of each word is similar. So um, this happens in Psalm 119, where the entire psalm is structured around certain letters. And in fact, you probably your English Bible will actually have the Hebrew letter heading up each section because every line starts with that letter. And so it's a it's called a mnemonic device. It's a memory device. It makes it easier to memorize. So some people argue that that's what's happening here in Psalms 9 and 10, that they were split later on for some unknown reason. Um, other people will point out that Psalm 10 doesn't have any heading, and so that's kind of unusual. And there are some manuscripts that combine them, like the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So there's reasons to think that, but I, if there's an acrostic here, it's super messy. It, some letters are left out. Some are switched around. So that may be a little bit of a stretch. I think it's best just to read them as two separate psalms. Now, there's definitely a lot of connections. We've seen this in past psalms as well. There's connections between different psalms. But the tone in Psalm 9 is so different from the tone in Psalm 10, as I'm sure you'll see as we go through this. So let's jump in. The heading here says, To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. So Muth Laban, again, that's sort of the, the phrase that's new here. It could mean the death of the son. So according to the death of the son, so maybe that's a song of some kind. It's kind of a weird name for a song, but it also may relate to the context of this psalm. Now, the surrounding context, as we've seen, so many of these psalms around uh, Psalm 9 are about Absalom's rebellion about Absalom who rebelled against King David. Absalom was one of the sons of King David who rebels against him. And at the end of his rebellion, it ends with his death. So Absalom's death ends the rebellion and David is restored to the kingdom. So could that heading be referring to the death of Absalom? I think there's a strong argument to be made here, although we can't be 100% sure. Now, when Absalom dies... In this battle in 2 Samuel, we see that David's response in 2 Samuel 18, 33 is to mourn. Because it's his son, he had commanded the armies not to harm his son, so to defeat the army, but not to hurt his son. Um, But Joab, David's general, when he sees Absalom vulnerable and hanging from a tree, he throws spears at him. He throws javelins at him and kills Absalom. 
And so that's that his response at that point was to to mourn because he had lost his son. But Joab in 2 Samuel 19 rebukes David and he says, how can you mourn when people have given their lives to win this victory? Job is very upset because of this. So something that this Psalm was later written by David as a response to that victory where David gives a different uh, response. It's always a right thing to mourn your dead child, of course, even though they were your enemy. But David also, in this psalm, is expressing his praise and his thankfulness that God has delivered him from the wicked. So two different responses, possibly to the same event. So let's look at this. We'll see a lot of helpful things in the psalm. Psalm 9, 1 through 2 shows us that we should have confidence in God's name and God's deeds. Have confidence in God's name and his deeds. Let's read verses 1 and 2. It says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So he starts by giving thanks. And that word for give thanks is this, has the same root as the word hallelujah. So it might be better translated as praise. He's giving praise to God, and he's recounting God's deeds on his behalf. He's in awe of what God has done. And I think these verses build for us an understanding of what praise to God looks like. We see first that he's giving thanks, right? And he's giving thanks with his whole heart. So his whole heart is engaged in this praise or thankfulness. Then we see he recounts all of God's wonderful deeds. So his memory is engaged. He's looking back on God's past actions and recounting them. Then we see gladness and exaltation, that his emotions are engaged as well. And then we see that he's singing praise. Praise needs artistic and creative expression as well. And so what we see here is that the whole person of David is involved in praising God. He's praising God with everything in him. Now, again, what's the object of his praise? That's very important. It's God's name. That's who God is. And it's God's deed. Deeds, that's what he does. So who God is and what he does are in view here. And again, we'll see that sort of pairing all throughout the Psalms. Who is God and what has he done for us? We should always praise God in regards to his character and his actions. And we can know his character and his actions first and foremost through his word, right? That's where we get the infallible, inerrant word about who he is and what he has done. And we can praise him for his actions to Israel, his actions obviously in redemption through Christ Jesus, and the future redemption that's waiting for us. All of those things are in view. But we can also praise God through our own experience. And this is helpful for me to think about what are some tangible ways that God has provided for me that that, uh, obviously I can trust what's here. This is the most sure thing in the world, but I can also look and say, if God has done that for me at this this time, I know he's going to figure out this situation that I'm in. So look back and see God's character and his deeds. Then we see in verses three to six that we should have confidence in God's judgment of evil. Have confidence in God's judgment of evil. So we, we've seen this in past Psalms, and it comes out here again. Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. So when he says when here, it's indicating in, in the original language that this hasn't happened yet. But he's confident that it will happen in the future. And so we can speak of God's deliverance as a sure thing. And then he says that God has maintained his just cause and that God sits on the throne giving righteous judgment. So he has received a judgment in his favor from God. And that reminds him 
that God is going to do what God needs to do. And look at verses five and six. He says, you have rebuked the nations, you have made the wicked perish, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out, the very memory of them has perished. So here he's focused on the nations, whereas in Psalm 7 and other Psalms, he refers to individuals or enemies that are attacking him. So here David is seeing God as vindicating his people by giving them victory over the nations, over the wicked enemies that they have. So this is much broader in scope. But the big idea here is there's confidence in knowing that God will judge the wicked. Again, we saw this in Psalm 7, and it's so important. If you're striving to be righteous and you're attacked by wicked people, it's so easy to capitulate to that evil, either by giving into the attacks or by becoming evil in order to have victory over those people. Right? It's easy to think that, well, I have to compromise in some way. I have to do something bad in order to have victory. I have to become like evil in order to conquer evil. But here we can see that's not the case, right? We know if God will judge the evil, we don't have to take things into our own hands and fix things ourselves. As, as I've said before, right, we can say with freedom that that's not in my job description. We can pass the buck in a sense, to God, because he has said that he will vindicate his name. He will have vengeance for his people. And so we can continue to do what God calls us to do and trust him to figure the details out. So we see this confidence that we can have in God's judgment of evil. In verses 7 to 10, we can have we see we can have confidence in God's character. We can have confidence in God's character. Look at who God is and find confidence in difficult times. Verse 7, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. So it says that Yahweh sits enthroned. He sits in judgment. And so the idea of him being sit, seated, seated, <laughs> seated, seated is that he's secure in his judgment that he's always in this posture of judging and setting right what is evil in the world. And every judgment that he renders is a righteous or upright judgment. In other words, what God says he will do, he will do. It's in his character. He is, he is sitting in judgment. He will uphold what he has said in the past. And so we know that God's word is constant. It's unchanging. Verse 9, he says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. So the word stronghold is repeated twice there. In, in my Bible, I underlined that, right? Stronghold, stronghold. Obviously, that's a very strong emphasis here. And this word stronghold refers to a place that's inaccessible. It's a safe place where someone can go to have refuge from their enemies. So God is the place that you can go to when the rest of the world is falling apart, when people are attacking you when things are unfair, when the unrighteous, the wicked seem to be winning. He's the one who is firm. He never changes. Reminds me of the words of Isaiah 46, 1 through 3, which I was thinking about because you know recently we had this flooding and storms in Santa Cruz and the cliffs were falling into the sea and trees were falling down, all this stuff. But uh, Psalm 46, I think I have Isaiah 46 there. Psalm 46, 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The, the idea there is the same as God being a stronghold, right? God is here. He's with us. He's present. And so even if the mountains get thrown into the sea, we are still secure. We are still safe because God is our stronghold. And then going back to, to Psalm 9, he says, verse 10, those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. It may seem like God has forgotten you when you're seeking him. It may seem like God is not responding, but God never forgets those who are his. He never forgets the righteous, and he will always ultimately deliver. 2 Peter 2.9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God has shown again and again that he knows how to rescue his people. So trust in him. Wait for him. God is unchanging and he protects his people because that's in his very character. And then Psalm 9 verses 11 to 18, we see God's, we can have confidence in God's deliverance of his people. We can have confidence in God's deliverance of his people. God is not only stable and unchanging and not only judges his enemies, but he also delivers us when we're in trouble. We can have confidence in this. Look at verse, verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So he's now calling people to sing to God, to join him. It was singular to start, right? Uh, he's going to give praise, and now he's calling, he's invoking other people to praise God with him. God avenges blood, right? He avenges blood. This phrase uh, of somebody who has blood, in a sense, speaks to attempted or actual murderers. We see this kind of language in Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. We see this language in Genesis 9 when capital punishment is instituted, that God avenges blood, that there's a punishment for those who will take blood or take a life is the idea. God will exact a payment for those who do evil, even if it doesn't look like it in the here and now. God will always rescue the innocent in the end, and he will always punish the guilty. Verse 13, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all of your praises, that in the gates of your daughter and the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. So gates are mentioned twice here, but they speak to different things. Where the gates of death that God rescues him from speaks to entering into death. He's about to, to enter into death, and yet God rescues him at the last moment. God saves his life. And so now what he wants to do is to tell God's praises in the gates of the city of Zion, right? To, to be in the place, the gates were the place of, tra- of main traffic. Everyone had to, it was kind of a bottleneck. Everyone had to go through the gates to get into the city or to get out of the city. And so business happened in those gates. People would meet there, would, would do business there. And so he is going around telling people about God's deliverance. And, and I love this because if you're a confident person, then you're going to be a vocal person about the things that matter, about God's deliverance, right? Who God is and what he has done is going to be on your mouth all the time. And then we see verses 15 to 18 are very interesting. They, they show us this principle that you reap what you sow. 
Um, it says, the nations have sunk in the pit they have made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. And so this is showing us that the, the wicked plans of evil people will backfire, that this shouldn't be seen as incidental, that this is actually part of God's plan, that God rescues people by using evil to destroy itself. And verse 16 makes this explicit. It says, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. So when people are caught in their own schemes, that's not an accident of history. That's because God is is working his judgment through the undoing of evil by its own, own hands. So for example, in our context, if Absalom is in view here, which I think is, is possible, maybe likely, then he's kind of a great example of this, right? Because in Absalom's story, again, go back and listen to the Daily Gospel teaching on 2 Samuel. It's great. But in Absalom's story, he was very vain. He was very focused on himself and especially on his hair. So as the story is, it goes, the Bible even records the weight of his hair when he would cut it. So it was very thick, luscious, beautiful hair. And so... The fact that the weight is recorded means that somebody was weighing his hair, probably him, right? So he's so vain that he cares about stuff like that. And so he's shown as an incredibly shallow, vain person. In fact, when when Hushai gives him this bad advice to thwart Ahithophel's wise advice, his advice essentially is don't go win a victory now when it would be easy. Instead, tear down the entire city brick by brick, right? Go out with your armies, go in your splendor and your majesty, and that vain advice appeals to Absalom because he's a fool. So when the, the way that Absalom dies is due to a couple of things. One is that he's riding on a mule when he should be on a horse. A mule was more of like a luxury vehicle, I guess, so to speak, a royal kind of mount. And it's, when he's, he's out for a luxury ride when he should be using a beast of war like a horse. And so that's one thing. And then the second thing is that as he's running away, his mule um, runs into a, a tree and his hair gets caught in the tree. So he's hanging by his hair. So this is obviously, you know, ironic and funny because, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's been a couple thousand years, so we can laugh a little bit now, I guess. But, but he's caught because of what he's so vain about, right? So he's caught in his own, his, his, Pride and his vanity is his downfall. And then Joab uses him as a pincushion as he's hanging there. So we see that. We see it um, again and again. Um, we mentioned Haman before. But these stories show that evil will undo itself. That evil is self-destructive at its core. And then in Psalm 9, verses 19 to 20, we see the final thing is that we should ask God to act. So if we can have confidence for all of these reasons, if we can trust in God and rest secure in him as our stronghold, we should finally ask God to act on our behalf. Verse 19, he says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. The word for man that's used two times there man and men, is again that word enosh that we saw before, which speaks to man in his frailty and his weakness. And here he's asking God to put humans in their proper place, to not let men prevail, to not let the rebellious plans of men to thwart God win against him. Don't let humans prevail in their desire to be free from God's rule, because that leads to all kinds of destruction. 
So what are some practical thoughts from this, this psalm? Well, one thing is we can have confidence, full confidence in God's deliverance as Christians. If you know God, if you are a, a follower of his, you can have confidence that he will deliver you. But let's not try to cash checks that God hasn't written. So what I mean by that is that God may not fix your temporary situation. Maybe you have an issue with your uh, with a relationship or with your work, or you have people that are accusing you of something. I don't know. But God may not fix that situation in exactly the way that you want him to. We can have confidence that the end is secure, that we know how the entire story ends, that we will have the victory in Christ at the end, but we don't know for sure what it'll look like in this temporary time. So let's be careful uh, to not focus on things are going to get better in the next five minutes or the next couple of days, but to know that things are going to be secure in eternity, which is much, much better. Second thing, always be reminding yourself of the ways that God has provided you for you in the past. Always be bringing up to yourself the ways that God has blessed you, that he's He's saved you, that he's given things to you that you have desperately needed. Remind yourself of those stories and let those stories shape you and tell those stories for God's glory to people who will listen. Praise him for what he's done. The next thing is that Matthew Henry said, the better God is known, the more he is trusted. The better God is known, the more he is trusted. That's a, that's a beautiful thing and absolutely true. So we need to know God better so we can trust him more. If you have a hard time believing this about God, maybe it's because you don't know him as well as you should. So keep reading his word. Keep, keep seeking after him. Keep praying to him. Keep growing in your knowledge so you can trust him more and more when things get difficult. And of course, this is why we have this YouTube channel is to help our church and others who might listen to this to, to be strengthened in God's word, to know his truth so that you can know him and through that actively trust him in your life. The next thing I would say is, again, what we've mentioned before, but no one harms an evil person more than that evil person harms himself. And this is good for us to remember because often I think if we've been wronged, we often think or we fantasize about what if we could wrong that person? What if we could be the person in power? And that's not the right way to think. It's always better to be wronged than to wrong someone else. Again, I know it's counterintuitive, but if the ultimate end of someone who has sinned is that they face the judgment of God, then it's a better thing to face something painful now and yet to be innocent of sin. So let's, let's trust in God and let's look to him. And again, let's remember the ultimate salvation that we have in Jesus, that he's the one who vindicates our cause, not because we're righteous, but because he is. And so we look to him and we hope for the day when he will make all things new.